in this series on the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm getting down to Christmas, so I'm going to cut it off next week. Uh, next week I'll be preaching a series that will kind of tie in a little bit to um, a, a sermon that will tie in and lead us right into Christmas. Um, and I'm obviously missing some key elements in any series on the Holy Spirit, such as the fruits of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, some of those kind of things. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to come back to that after Christmas or whether God's going to lead me in another direction, but um, we'll wait and find out. Um, this week, I'm going to deal with a little bit more of a sensitive subject um, and talk about the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. And uh, as I do that today, uh, my goals are simply this. I want to be true to Scripture all the way through um, before I'm true to anything else. I want to be uh, true to my Wesleyan heritage. I want to explain respectfully other traditions and perspectives on it. I, I hope to kind of somewhat in a short time frame explain why Wesleyans believe what they believe. And then lastly, I just want to encourage us again uh, to um, have a spirit-filled experience in our life and, and to make sure that we're allowing the Holy Spirit to do everything he wants to do uh, in us. So I want to start this morning uh, with uh, the key text um, in, in Acts chapter 2, and I'm just reading down through verse 13. Um, you would need to read the whole chapter to get the whole thing, um, but the, the key text is in these first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and Jewish and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we just ask, Lord, that you would um, give us insight, help us, Lord, to um, figure out where we are. Um, and um, I just pray, Lord, that we would be um, stirred this morning uh, to trust you and to trust your spirit uh, to do whatever uh, he sees fit to do in each one of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you stop and, and if somebody asked you to divide Christianity into two sections, how would you do that? Some of you would think, well, there's Eastern Christianity and there's Western Christianity, of which we are a part. Uh, Eastern Christianity would include Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, that kind of uh, religion, which I got a lot more familiar with when I was over in, in Israel. Um, and, and it's just really quite different. Um, some of us would divide Christianity between Catholics and Protestants. Um, but here's one you probably hadn't thought of before. Single-blessing people and second-blessing people. <laughs> so, um, I just kind of made that up, but it's pretty close to accurate. There, there, if you were to talk to Christians, either they believe in salvation and only one event, or they believe in salvation plus God doing something at a second time in your life that is significant. Um, and so I just defined it a single blessing and second blessing, uh, people. So it's kind of like having Thanksgiving dinner and deciding whether you want seconds or not. <laughs> now, here's something, um, for the most part, if you were to look at single blessing people, um, I, I'm talking there about people who, um, really don't believe that you need any kind of further experience in your Christian life after you've asked Jesus into your heart. That everything that God wants to do has been done right then and there, and there isn't anything more that you and I really need to do after that point. Most of those people, when they read Acts chapter 2, they read it merely as the birth of the church with no practical application for us today at all. Now, Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Hands down, there's no debate about that on either side. The question is, does it have practical application for us today? Does the Holy Spirit have a, another work to do in us after salvation? So there's three groups that would fall in this category uh, one is liberals, and I have to say I question whether there's any blessing at all, a single blessing even there, uh, because these people don't even believe the Bible is the word of God, um, inerrant, <laughs> inspired, um, so I don't know what difference it makes. Um, you know, they probably don't believe in salvation and being born again either. Um, so, um, and these are the people that probably will look at us and wonder what on earth we're doing, we're probably drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> like they did uh, to the uh, on the day of Pentecost. Then there is this second group of dispensationalists. Hope I don't have to say that very often this morning. Um, and, and and let me just explain them a little bit to us. Dis, a dispensation is a time period or an era where God does something. Uh, um, in a particular way, only during that time frame. And so dispensationalists are people who believe, for instance, every dispensationalist believes that God only worked with Israel in the Old Testament. And when the Old Testament was done, he was done with Israel and has no further plans for Israel. 
He's done. He started with, in the New Testament, he, God only works with the church, and Israel lost it. They gave up their right to anything God was doing. So there are Christians out there today who simply have nothing to do with Israel, have no basis for supporting Israel at all because they believe God has washed his hands of Israel altogether. I don't know how you can read Romans and a number of other texts and believe that, but they do. Um, so dispensationalists, um, they, you know, they think in time frames, and God worked with Israel in the Old Testament, God works with the church today, and God didn't work with the church, you know, or Gentiles in the Old Testament, and God doesn't work with Israel today. They also believe the same thing in regard to Pentecost, and when you look at Acts, and you look at Acts chapter 2 in particular, they believe, dispensationalists believe, that everything God did through the Holy Spirit, he only did during the time frame, the era, the dispensation in which the apostles were alive in. And so you'll talk to Christians who believe that, you know, basically the Holy Spirit came for that certain time frame and that the gifts that are mentioned in the scriptures in Corinthians and in Ephesians, and I forget now the third reference, uh, but those spiritual gifts are really operative and were really only meant to be operative during the time of the apostles, especially the supernatural gifts, healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, um, and I've forgotten some of the others, but the supernatural beliefs, gifts, they really believe were only to be meant used during the time while the apostles were alive. So when John the Apostle died, the last one, that was the end of that. And after that, the Holy Spirit was basically done in that, in that kind of a role. So anyway, just, just, this is just to kind of help you piece all this together. Okay? Um, does that make sense? Now, moving on to another group of people... These would be the Reformed and Calvinists. This would include Lutherans, all of our neighbors. <laughs> this would include Baptists. This would include Presbyterians, people of that whole tradition and all of that. They view a whole idea of a second blessing as an insult to the first blessing. And that is basically their... Their primary problem with Pentecost um, and some of the you know doctrine of the second blessing is is man if you go back for the a second helping you've just insulted the first plate of food you took <laughs> and so if if you if God needs to do a second work in my life then obviously there was something wrong with salvation that He gave me. And that's their whole line of reasoning there. And so you just need to kind of understand that's how certain people look at the whole idea of a second blessing. Um, now, on the other side of the second blessing, let me walk through. Uh, there's basically three different categories there also. Um, and, and when we're talking second blessing, what we're saying here is we believe that when, when we ask Jesus into our heart, Every one of us has a spirit of God living in us. Now, I've been, I hope, very clear about that from the 
from the get-go in this series. I don't know of any tradition that doesn't believe that. Um, so when, when we become born again, when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. We also, however, believe that there comes a second time after I've been a Christian for a while, I discover that living the Christian life isn't quite as easy as I thought it would be. <laughs> and that I really can't do this in my own strength and in my own power and all of that. And, and for various reasons, I might those would have been for me the primary ones, but for various reasons as I live the Christian life, a saved life, I discover, boy, I really need God to do a more thorough work in me. And so I come back and I ask God to do uh, more so that I, the Spirit of God doesn't just indwell me, but he fills me. And so that's what we're talking about in a second blessing. Now, the three levels here of churches, and um, the first one would be holiness churches. They would have been, we would be part of that, Wesleyans, Nazarenes, Free Methodists, um, those traditions um, would have sprung out of the holiness movement. And they believe that righteousness needs to be imputed and imparted. Now, those two terms, those are theological terms, so I'll, I'll pause here a little bit. Imputed means that um, I've, you know, I'm wearing a mask. Um, I have become saved, and even though I'm not perfect, or I'm not righteous, or all of that kind of stuff, when God looks at me because Jesus is in my heart, he sees perfection. He sees righteousness. That means he has covered me. We, we say, are you washed in the blood? That's imputed. God has come and washed us. That doesn't mean that in everything I do, I'm righteous or pure or holy. Yet, on the inside, but God has clothed me. And so we believe in, in when, when I become a Christian that God looks at me different. He doesn't see me in the same way he saw me before I was a Christian. Holiness people believe that God not only wants to look at me as, as a holy person, but that God wants to little by little and through certain experiences change me on the inside so that as I live my life, I actually become more holy. I become more righteous. I become more gracious. I become more loving. And so we believe that God wants to actually not just label us, like I can take a can of, of peaches and I could rip off the label and I could put a label of pears on it, that doesn't change the contents at all, but it looks like it's pears. <laughs> Some of you have opened up a can and been surprised occasionally. <laughs> okay? What we're saying is God wants to change the contents. And he doesn't do that all in your salvation experience. So that's, that's that. Do you understand that concept? Okay? Um, so... John Wesley basically started that holiness movement back um, in the 1700s, and it spread to the United, uh, to the United States uh, through the Methodists. 
Um, and uh, that movement focuses on two things. Holiness, holy living, and social action. We, um, because of revivalism, the, the holiness revivals in the United States, right after the Civil War, after we'd fought the big issue of abolition and all of that, um, then the church, the holiness church, didn't know what to do. So they really shifted towards just holiness thinking, and they forgot about social action. And now we're trying to recover some of that in our heritage and all of that. But if you went back to John Wesley, like I told you, he was very involved in social action. He ran medical clinics. He fought against slavery. He developed medicine for sick people. He was in the prisons. He drafted and worked with uh, uh, Parliament to write laws to protect children from child labor. He was very involved socially in addition to all the other religious type things that he did. He was very involved changing the culture of his day. So holiness people originally were involved in holiness and social action. And so when holiness people look at um, Acts chapter 2 and they look at what the Holy Spirit is doing throughout the, the New Testament they primarily see two things. They see that we need a second blessing in order for God to change us on the inside because we decide, hey, I've, I've tried long and hard to change who I am, but I can't do it. And they see that um, the Spirit of God is the only one that can help us become really effective in witness. And we believe that until God really changes us on the inside and changes our character and our lifestyle and all of those kind of things, we're never going to be very effective in our witness. Now, you know this, because what's the first thing people say as a reason not to become a Christian is all those hypocrites. People who have imputed righteousness but they haven't grown into imparted righteousness yet. And so they're not very good witnesses. Now, so that's the holiness movement. Now, moving on down, I want to help you understand that Pentecostal people primarily came out of holiness people. Um, The first Pentecostal movement was among Nazarenes in California. The first major uh, revival uh, came out of uh, Nazarenes at Azusa Street in California. Um, They are rooted there, started among holiness people there in 1906. That revival lasted for a solid nine years. The first year they had revival meetings every night of the year. (laughs) I mean, and and very long, extensive meetings. and, and you can, you can uh, quibble over the end dates of that revival, but just think a nine-year revival. And some stretch that out for another five years. Um, it was led by an African-American preacher. Uh, his name was William Joseph Seymour. And it was uh, accompanied about the same time that that started. There was an earthquake in Los Angeles. And uh, as a result of that, there was a lot of spiritual hunger that went with that, tied in with that. And over the course of just now, this is just the first year 
of that long revival period. In the first year, they had, there were 13,000 people who ended up speaking in tongues. And so that was the first major movement here in the United States um, with that. Um, in those services, uh, there were, you know, somebody could argue about what all happened at them, but basically most people agree that there were ecstatic experiences, uh, dynamic worship, speaking in tongues, a lot of physical healings, and a lot of um, really the first evidence in the United States of interracial, interracial worship and mixed races coming together for worship and all of that, um, which is definitely, you go to Acts chapter 2 and you see that. So, um, hope I'm being fair to all of that. When they look, when that group of people look at Acts chapter 2 and the rest of Acts and the New Testament, they see, man, we need that second blessing. And the evidence of that is speaking in tongues and effective witness. Obviously, you see effective witness happening in Acts chapter 2. Then there is a third group of people, charismatic churches, and, you know, it's really a a very short jump from Pentecostal to charismatic, Um, and and their emphasis would be on charismatic gifts of the Spirit, uh, in particular the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, And uh, they believe that Pentecost results in the manifestation not of just being narrow-minded and just choosing um, speaking in tongues, but a manifestation of numerous, uh, especially the supernatural spiritual gifts, and effective witness. Now, if you were to look at that group, the common agreement that we have, there's two of them. First, that you and I need more than what we get at salvation. All of them agree on that. That's a good thing to know and to respect uh, across those lines. Secondly, all three are very interested in effective witness. That's a wonderful thing. And, And regardless of what tradition, if you're, you know, holiness or Pentecostal or charismatic, you ought to value that about the other groups. That is, you know, they're saying, you know, we need we need to be able to practice, charismatics would say, we need to be able to practice more healings if we want to be more effective in witness. Or Pentecostal would say, we need to be able to be, we need to be speaking in tongues if we're going to be more effective in witness. Holiness people would say, we really need to have our lives changed if we're going to be more effective in witness and all of that. So, um, that's the thing. Now, here's the deal I want you to watch. It's very easy for us, all three of these groups, if we make a wrong focus on the first one, to destroy our effective witness. Now, I, I, I'm going to speak mostly about us because we're in the holiness tradition. All of us know that holiness people from time to time have been bad witnesses. <laughs> Just because some of the stupid things we've done with holiness. And we've done some stupid things over the years with holiness. 
either gone crazy with legalism or this or that or something else or, you know, just become very rigid in a mindset and all of that. And so if you, if you take your focus on holiness, practical holiness, and you determine that to be holy, you have to have sleeves down to here, or you have to do this, or you can't wear earrings, or you can't, you know, and it almost always involves women and not the men. Um, you know, it just adds to all of that. But if you, if you take your focus on holiness and do something that is extra biblical with it, eventually you end up destroying your effective witness. Same thing with Pentecostals. There is a proper use of the gift of speaking in tongues, but all of us have also heard or heard of others who have heard um, where it has been abused and has gone beyond the realms of Scripture and all of that. And as a result of that, it has led to an ineffective witness or charismatics, same way. In such an emphasis on just those supernatural spiritual gifts that they go beyond, again, that becomes such a focus that they don't, they lose focus on the witness. And they actually become a bad witness. Uh, I shouldn't take time to do that. When we first were moved here, um, we went to dinner at the restaurant that used to be where Roosevelt Inn, uh, just beyond where that is. I don't even remember the name of it now, but there used to be a big restaurant there. And uh, Priscilla's sister, sisters had come to join us, and Penny's, you know, in the wheelchair and all of that, and we went in for lunch, and um, <laughs> this wild, charismatic lady came up and, and just interrupted our, our meal as a family and informed Penny right there in front of us all that, if she had more faith, she wouldn't be sitting in that wheelchair. And there must be sin in her life and uh, all kinds of things. And, and trust me, if Penny thought there was something she could do or <laughs> anything else, she'd be out of that wheelchair. Um, but I'll guarantee that that lady did not make an effective witness that day to the other patrons in that restaurant or to my sister-in-law or to you know anyone that witnessed that. It was a poor use. She may have had perfect motives, but she didn't conduct them in a way that ended in, in witness, effective witness. So we, I think the key is that our goal is that whatever we are, wherever we fit in this category, the end goal should be that you and I care about reaching people around us for Jesus. And that we practice our holiness or speaking in tongues, or our charismatic gifts in such a way that people around us come to get the first blessing. <laughs> Do you notice that? Everything that happened on the day of Pentecost led to people finding the first blessing, not the second one. <laughs> they got saved. They came to know Jesus. The greatest thing the Holy Spirit will do in your life and my life is do a work in us so that other people will come to know Jesus. Now, I don't know where else I'm supposed to go with this. Oh, let's go back to the text. So, um, it was on the day of Pentecost. They were all together in one place. Now, 
Pentecost means 50. Penta is 50. Um, So Pentecost comes, um, and it comes 50 days after they celebrated the Passover. Um, And so, um, like in the Old Testament, Passover was the the deliverance from Egypt. And then 50 days later, they celebrated the Old Testament Pentecost, which was a celebration of giving of the law. Now, isn't this kind of neat? Because Jesus dies over Passover weekend and during the Passover feast. And then 50 days later, they celebrate Pentecost and it takes on a new meaning. Instead of celebrating the giving of the law of Moses, they are now celebrating the giving of the Spirit who is supposed to lead us and direct us and guide us into all truth. What was the law to do? Set some standards and some boundaries for people until the Spirit came. And so you have that wonderful connection. I just wanted you to understand, you know, why why they had Pentecost in the New Testament and in the Old and, and Passover and all of that. Now, beyond that, um, so they, they, you know, Jesus is resurrected. There's 40 days it goes before he ascends into heaven, and there's still 10 days left before um, Pentecost. And what does Jesus tell them to do? To gather together and to pray and to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. So when he does that, in Acts chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 4, four things happen. First of all, there is a sound like a blowing of a violent wind. Violent wind. So you think power as a symbol, Pentecost, there should be some spiritual power that comes into our life to help us live the Christian life. Secondly, there were what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on their heads. So people were looking around at other people and they would see like tongues of fire on their heads. And fire is a symbol for purity. And so you can look at that. And then all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they had the Holy Spirit, but they were now filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you think possession. The Holy Spirit actually taking control and us surrendering our lives to the Holy Spirit so he can do whatever he wants with us. And then fourthly, and they began to speak in tongues. And that's proclamation, sharing the gospel with other people as the Spirit enabled them. So um, here you have people from all nations, different languages were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they were hearing the gospel in their own language. And then, you know, After that happened, they said, well, what is going on here? And so Peter got up and preached a sermon that you can read in Acts chapter 2. And after he got done preaching, they said, well, what do we do with this? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And and 3,000 people were saved that day on the day of Pentecost. Now, of the signs that happened on Pentecost... Pentecostals believe uh, and insist that the evidence or the proof of being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Charismatics would go a step beyond and say that in, uh, that that's too narrow, that you need to include all the supernatural gifts. Um, and Wesleyans um, think that speaking in tongues is merely a means to an end 
uh, and that is the witness to people of other cultures. Um, so we don't, well, there are a few out there that would, but for the most part, I think if we have any integrity with Scripture, um, we can't deny the existence of speaking in tongues. Um, we just would argue that a lot of the time in the world today, um, it's not used for the same purpose that God designed it for, um, which is that effective witness in our culture uh, to other people. I would tell you that if I ever go to the mission field, I really hope I get the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, and we've had missionaries that have had that happen to them. Uh, they've gotten somewhere where they didn't know the language and they ended up preaching and pretty soon the interpreter, they'd wait for the interpreter, and the interpreter would say, you're already talking in their language. <laughs> um, and I, I certainly would hope that would happen to me because, you know, I took Spanish in high school, I had to retake in college because I didn't know it. I took Greek in college, and I had to retake it in seminary because I didn't know it. I don't do well with languages. <laughs> so I can guarantee that uh, for sure. I would also tell you that, it, you know, you look at Scripture and uh, there are, um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, the important thing that I think as you look at Acts chapter 2 is that tongues, the gift of tongues that happened on the day of Pentecost shows us just how important it is to God that people from all these other nations heard about Jesus. He would go out of his way to do something so radical as have people speak a language they didn't know. So all these people from all these different languages could hear the gospel in their own language. Pentecostalism, or Pentecost, will save us from racism, it will save us from exclusiveness, and it will save us from narrow-mindedness of thinking that well, all we have to worry about is ourselves. No, the gospel wants to go out. God wants the gospel to go out. There are seven primary Pentecostal texts. Um, I think I have those up on the screen. I'm not going to mention those. Uh, and then there are also just about as many texts uh, that speak about the Holy Spirit, uh, where the speaking in tongues does not accompany the filling of the Holy Spirit, at least um, visibly in that text. It may have accompanied, but it's not recorded in those texts. Some of them, it's a little bit strange that it wouldn't have been if it was. Um, Wesleyans would question, when you go back to that text in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and you have the four things that happened on the day, well, if, if speaking in tongues is as miraculous as that was... Um, if you know why isn't the proof that you know somebody can see a flame of fire on my head or you know something else happened? Why did we pick that one or why did we pick that gift? Um, and so that's you know or a blowing wind um, when when you know God had really got a hold of my heart. Um, one of the other things that you need to think through and process, uh, wherever you are, and, and I genuinely don't care where you end up on this, wherever God leads you is where I want you to be. Um, but all of the other gifts were exercised prior to Pentecost. Jesus practiced healing, exorcism of demons, 
all of those kind of things. Everything except for speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues was practiced by Jesus or by um, disciples before Pentecost Day. Um, now, that is a reason why Pentecost value it so much, partly, is because that is unique um, to Pentecost. Um, Wesleyans believe that if Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and never spoke in tongues, then it's probably okay for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues. Um, so that that's one way that we look at it. Um, the gift of speaking in tongues, one of the other points that we would make is it was an absolute, complete surprise on the day of Pentecost. Jesus didn't prophesy it. He didn't indicate. He didn't hint. He didn't, he didn't tell. He just told him to pray that the Comforter would come. There was nothing in John, nothing in, in everything that Jesus had ever said, even in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus ever said that would indicate that when the Holy Spirit came, this would come with it, or should always come with it. Um, so that's one of the one of the things that we always um, things think about. The other thing is tongues was never sought by the church. They didn't pray for that imperative. They were praying for the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't find it sought after or any other particular gift. You may have the gift of helps. Well, you don't, you don't find people praying for the gift of helps or any other gift or being led into those gifts um, all by themselves. And, and so here's, here's the point I want to close with. Um, it seems to me that you and I as Christians ought to seek after the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do <laughs> in us and through us. Um, and that we ought to allow the Holy Spirit to surprise us and let God be God. But I do think that you and I have an obligation to seek for God to continue to do more than what you and I received at salvation. I think God wants to continue to work in us. He wants to continue to transform us on the inside. And he wants to use us for effective witness in our world, however that comes about.